Okay, let's pray before we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for the wonders that we see in it. Father, pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see wonders in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You with the sad eyes, don't be discouraged. Oh, I realise it's hard to take courage in a world full of people. You can lose sight of it all and in the darkness inside you can make you feel so small. Those are the opening lines to uh, a beautiful song called True Colours uh, by Cindy Lauper. In the song, the singer encourages us to show our true colours, which are beautiful, uh, like a rainbow. It's really a lovely song, but I don't know about you, I worry about people seeing my true colours. I worry about people uh, seeing what I'm really like uh, on the inside. And as we look at God's word, as we look at this passage here, it can sort of act as a bit like a a true colour exposer, if you like. The Bible can cut down deep into us by the Spirit. And this morning is no different. We're going to look at John's account of Jesus being sentenced by Pilate, just from verses verses 1 to 16. And we're going to see true colours exposed of the different people in the passage. And in the midst of that, it might be actually this morning that we'll see our own true colours exposed as we look at, at what's happening there. There are three other gospel accounts which give us parallel accounts of this, but we're just going to focus on John's gospel this morning, what he's trying to tell us. And what we get is three revelations of true colours. The first one we see in verses 1 to 7, Jesus is revealed as son of God. Here in that first section we see Jesus being uh, flogged, Uh, we see him taking a crown of thorns on his head, we see people hailing him as king of the Jews and him being called son of God. Now the title son of God has, has two different meanings in the Bible. The first one is God the Son. You know the idea? We see throughout John's Gospel, Jesus' exclusive relationship with God the Father. With him before the world began, and the Father in him and he in the Father. And no doubt, all the way through John's Gospel, we get this idea that Jesus is God the Son. His idea of him being divine. Certainly the Jews understood what he was saying as as claiming to be equal with God. But there's also a second way that the Son of God can be Uh, used in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of the king of Israel. Uh, So uh, the kings of Israel throughout the Old Testament are referred to as sons of God. You see that in Psalm 2. You see that in 1 Samuel 7. This idea of the the son being the king uh, that is there to rule over the whole nation. Well, John here reveals Jesus as both God the son and also uh, the king of Israel. We see the kingly side, don't we, in the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Purple to this day is seen as the colour of royalty. You know, you get your sort of royal carriage going through and uh, it's all arrayed in purple. And crowns to this day are worn by king, kings and queens. Now normally crowns are a sign of glory, aren't they? Of exaltation, of, of big things. But here this crown is designed to bring humiliation and pain. The crown that Jesus wears to show his kingliness here is a crown of thorns. A crown that bears the mark of the curse. On the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there there's Genesis 3, 17 and 18. I'll just read the second part of it. It's God speaking to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. It's no mistake that the crown that he wears is a crown of thorns. It's a sign of the the curse that God had put on the world back at the beginning of Genesis. 
And what it's beginning to show us is the implications of Jesus being a king. What's actually really going on? Jesus here, as he's revealed as king, is actually taking the curse of man, the curse of humankind, on himself. And this is the only crown that Jesus will wear in his kingly uh, time on earth, a crown of suffering. And yet, there is hidden glory here. He is a suffering king, and part of his kingly glory is what he's suffering for. This king here is suffering for his people. He's actually going through this punishment on their behalf. So in that sense, it looks like a crown of humiliation, this crown of thorns. But actually, it's a crown of glory seen through eyes of faith. Because Jesus is is wearing the curse of his people, is bearing the punishment for them. It exalts him as glorious that he's going through this. But John also reveals him as God the Son. Uh, You see that in the way that Jesus is charged with blasphemy by the Jews. They're saying that really he said something wrong, that he said something blasphemous against God. Well, what they're saying is he's saying that he's God the Son. You see it in the way that Pilate reacts to the charge. Uh, do you see that down in, in verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 8? When Pilate heard this statement that Jesus was the Son of God, he was even more afraid. It shows us really that the way that John is using this is more than just a title meaning king. It's not just saying he was an earthly king. It's saying that he's divine, that he's the son of God. And you notice, don't you, that Pilate in response asks him, not about his kingship if you like, he asks him where he's from. Almost as though to ask him, you know, are you from earth or are you from heaven? So John is showing this all the way through his gospel, but Pilate up to this point doesn't seem to understand He doesn't seem to get what's going on, does he? So he orders Jesus to be flogged. We see that at the beginning of our passage, don't we? Uh, Verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. If he really understood that he was the son of God, if he'd understood it up to this point, I don't think he would have done this. There are three levels of flogging uh, in the, the Romans' hat. This is likely the most severe. It's really quite horrific what it hides in just that one term. They used the nickname of a scorpion for what they would use to administer uh, this flogging. It was a leather whip with each cord having bits of bone or metal attached to it. Soldiers would take it in turns to beat the prisoner until they're exhausted. Then they pass on to the next person. It was so brutal that some people died of being flogged. It was so harsh. But more than that, the soldiers don't just flog him, they mock him, don't they? You see them there in verse 2, putting a crown of thorns on his head. In verse 3, hailing him as king of the Jews. The soldiers make him an object of fun. Imagine how hard that must have been, not only for the pain, but for the humiliation. There's a possibility that Pilate suggested this. You know, the idea that if you could bring him forward and, and show that he's some sort of fake king, that you can really see that there's no chance that he's possibly the king then maybe the crowd will go easy on him. But the soldiers certainly enjoy their, their, their fun, don't they? But holding him forth as this sort of clown figure, a clown king, doesn't work. Pilate presents him before the crowd. Uh, you see him there in verse 5. Behold the man. That's what he says. And the crowd continue to cry out for his crucifixion. Now, it might be here that Pilate speaks more than he knows. Behold the man. 
Jesus was acting, as we said, as our representative, a sort of second Adam, bearing the punishment for the first Adam, bearing the curse. He is the man, if you like, our man. Now, nobody is suggesting here that uh, Pilate knows what he's saying as he presents Jesus as the man. But he speaks better than he knows. It's a bit like a, a few years ago, I used to live in France, and uh, not very much to do in France, so one night I found myself doing karaoke uh, in a bar in France. I know, uh, perhaps you don't believe it now after hearing my guitar skills, uh, but um, in a bar of karaoke, and I sang uh, an English song. And this guy came up to me afterwards, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you have a very good English accent. <laughs> He spoke better than he knew, didn't he? That's, uh, that's what we're saying. And the same with Pilate. He doesn't really know what he's saying. But John picks up this phrase to show us actually this is the man. This is our representative. And later on he'll call him the king. And again he'll speak better than he knows. But Pilate is clear here, doesn't he? He knows that Jesus doesn't deserve punishment. Have a look at verse 6, partway through. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He makes it clear. He knows that there's no problem. He knows that there's no guilt uh, in Jesus. He's also reminding them that they can't crucify him. So he's saying, oh, you take him and crucify him. They weren't allowed to. That's why they've come to Pilate. A lot of what Pilate says is sort of power play with the Jews. But they realise, really, this is going to be quite hard. So they bring forward their real charge here, now blasphemy. You see that there in verse 7? The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. So what it actually turns out with in the end, I mean, we're coming, we've sort of jumped in at the end of the trials of Jesus. In the end, what he's on trial for is being the Son of God. That's what the charge is before him. And notice it's his enemies that said that he claimed to be the Son of God. Often you get people who say, oh, well, the disciples made it up afterwards. Well, actually, it's on the lips of the enemies here that say that he's the Son of God. But Pilate, far from getting Pilate on side, it actually terrifies him. Which brings us to our second point. Pilate is revealed as scared and gutless. Let me read to you again 8 uh, to 14. When Pilate heard this statement... He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Hearing what Jesus uh, is claimed to be, makes Pilate even more scared. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. And we can assume that his question has got to do, like I say, with whether he's come from heaven or whether he's from earth. He gets no reply. 
Pilate tries to remind him of his authority. But Jesus tells him that he would have no authority if God had not given it to him. That agrees with uh, other teaching elsewhere, that earthly governments are, are sort of given authority by God. So the greater sin, says Jesus, is the ones who handed him over. Thinking about the chief priests, thinking about Judas perhaps as well. But Pilate, it would seem, is now even more afraid. He thought he just had an innocent man on his hands. Now he potentially has the son of God, or perhaps in his thinking, a son of the gods. That's probably how he understands it. You know, in Greek thought and and thought of the time, they would get these figures. You know, Hercules and Perseus, who were sons of the god, uh, sons of the gods. If he gets this wrong, he could anger one of the gods, perhaps. So Pilate, from that point, seeks to release him. I mean, he's tried before. He tried in chapter 18 that we had read to us before, offering Jesus or Barabbas. He tried at the beginning of the chapter by having Jesus flogged so that he would satisfy the crowds. But that attempt didn't work. But now he thinks he's fighting for his own skin. Now he thinks he might have upset the gods. So he tries to release Jesus. But then comes the mention of Caesar. Oh yes, Caesar. He might be scared of what the gods could do to him, but I think he's more scared of what Caesar could do to him. Caesar, of course, has authority over Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the area appointed by Rome. So his job was entirely dependent on Caesar's patronage. At this time, it was Caesar Tiberius. Secular accounts tell us that he'd already got in trouble with Tiberius a few years earlier. Pilate seemed to have a habit of sort of winding up the Jews on purpose uh, and then sort of trying to get out of trouble afterwards. And they had a habit of complaining to Caesar. So Caesar knows what's going on. And Caesar seems to scare him more than God. It reminds me of a bit of a quote from that film, The Usual Suspects, from a few years ago. This is the quote. It said, my friend always said to me, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. Well, I believe in God, and the only thing that scares me is Kaiser Soze. I imagine that's similar to Pilate. He doesn't really believe in God, but he's afraid of him. But he's more scared of what Caesar can do to him. You see, by mentioning Caesar, the Jews are sort of upping the stakes. He could be out of his job very, very soon. He could be out on his ear, or even worse. So Pilate backs down. He gives up. He brings Jesus out and sits him uh, and sits down on the judgment seat. That's the sort of official place to pass sentence, a bit like a judge sort of sitting down with their gavel. But instead of passing sentence, he says, "Behold, your king." That's a bit strange, isn't it? You'd expect him to say either he's crucified or he's released. But again, he speaks better than he knows. But the Jews want to hear play the Caesar card. Well, he's now going to play the Caesar card as well by saying, behold, your king. By doing this, he's reminding them who's boss. We'll see exactly how in a few moments' time. But notice here, it's not to save Jesus that he's doing this. He knows that Jesus is innocent. But he's out here to save his own skin. So rather than confront the crowd and risk his own job, he acts like a coward. He acts scared, he's gutless. But he doesn't do this without first turning it to his own advantage. And we'll see that in our last point. Jesus' own people are revealed as stubbornly guilty. Verses 15 and 16. Let me read them to you again. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered them over to be crucified. So he delivered him over to be crucified. John's Gospel began with a phrase very early on that said this in John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, here we see the fruition of that here at the end of John's Gospel. His own people reject him and hand him over to be crucified. But they don't just reject him. They reject God as well. They reject God the Father. Now, I don't just mean that, you know, you reject the Son, you reject the Father. That's true uh, throughout the Bible. But what I mean is that actually they reject God entirely by what they do. Pilate manages to get the Jews, Jews who should acknowledge God as their king, Jews who should be waiting for their messianic king, to say that their only king is Caesar. Some commentators have called this the abandonment of the messianic hope. In other words, they've given up on the idea that God is going to come as king. The Jewish leaders have given up their hope of God stepping in to save them and instead have thrown their lot in with the nations. And this is the leaders that do this. Do you notice it's the chief priests that say this? It's their religious leaders, no less. So the more I thought about this this week, this is one of the most shocking statements in the Bible, I think. You know, you're expecting them to say, we have no king but the Lord. We have no king but Yahweh, surely. But no king but Caesar? That's blasphemy. That's treason. Which ironically is exactly what they're accusing Jesus of, isn't it? Jesus will be put to death for blasphemy when it's the chief priests who are the blasphemers. They show their true colours, don't they? Willing to compromise their integrity in the pursuit of their own agenda. How is this to Pilate's advantage? Well, he is Caesar's man on the ground, isn't he? Appointed by Rome. By acknowledging Caesar as their king, they're acknowledging him as their governor. Pilate will no doubt use this to his advantage later on with the Jews. Having said that, it'll only last another three years. Uh, Pilate will uh, be fired by Caesar after he orders a massacre of Samaritans for no real good reason. He's not really a very nice man. And this is the man that the chief priests compromise with. This is Caesar's man that they would rather have than God. How low have they dropped in the pursuit of their own political agenda? What awful colours to show when the time comes. So what about us and our true colours? Well, John has written this in such a way to make us put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the story. John is writing this evangelistically. Again, on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So it's written to tell people about Jesus who don't believe in Jesus. But some of the principles we can apply to Christians as well. The first one, not so much, because the first characters are the soldiers, aren't they? They showed their true colours by their mockery. The soldiers were told to flog Jesus, but they went above and beyond that, didn't they? They cruelly mocked him. Jesus was a figure of fun for them. That might be you this morning. Uh, There are more and more, if you think about it, in our world who turn to mockery, to belittle Jesus, putting him on the level, you know, believing in Jesus on the level of believing in unicorns or pixies or flying spaghetti monsters. Perhaps that's you this morning. Well, remember who it's showing us who Jesus really is. They may be mocking 
but they're doing more than they know. Perhaps you're somewhere else this morning. Pilate showed his true colours by what he was prepared to do. At first he was trying to defend Jesus, wasn't he? he? But when push came to shove, he abandoned him. What was Pilate's red line? It was his job. Jesus was worth defending until his job was at risk. I wonder what your red line is. This far Jesus, but no further. Could be a job. Could be a child. Could be a hobby. Could be your health. If it means losing that Jesus, then no. That can be the thought process that uh, we can go through, can't it? Maybe not consciously. It's the thought process we have to go through before we come to Christ. But it's something that we need to think through again and again. Is there anything that he cannot demand of me? I mean, Abraham in the Bible was willing to give up Isaac. Job was willing to give up his family, wealth and health. Are you willing to give up all to follow him? The chief priests show their true colours by what they were prepared to compromise. They were so desperate to see Jesus executed, they showed really what they were prepared to give up. In their case, it was God himself. They would renounce God as their king, followers of God in name only. But whereas Pilate showed his true colours by what he wouldn't give up, his job, they showed their true colours by what they would give up. And the same is true of us, isn't it? How long does it take for us to go from Christians to being functional atheists? I want to say, in one sense, we do it every time we sin. We say, there is no king but me. I obey me and nobody else. I obey you while it suits me, but in the end, I'm the boss. Well, these people revealed what was already in their hearts, didn't they? And we can do that too as we as we sin, as we rebel. But what we need to remember wherever we are this morning is what these events mean. I mean, we've gone through the sort of mechanics of what's been happening, but there is this hidden glory that we talked about earlier. The fact that this was not a weak man facing an unprovoked beating. This was the Son of God beginning to bear the punishment for you and I. That's what's really going on here. He's dying for people like you and me. Who are cowards, who compromise, who mock, who scorn. He's paying the price that we should have paid. He's facing the punishment that we should have faced. Here are his true colours. He is the king, but he's also the man. He's our ruler, but he's also our substitute. He's our sovereign, but he's also our saviour. And what amazing love it must have taken to be both. To be king of heaven in glory and yet to die on a cross as a common criminal. For us, for you, for me. He wore a robe of humiliation that we might wear royal robes. He wore a crown of thorns that one day we might cast our crowns before him. So as we consider our own true colours, as red as crimson, as dark as night, we must consider that he died to make us white as snow. You people with the sad eyes, don't be discouraged. I realise it's hard to take courage in a world so full of people. You can lose sight of it all and the darkness inside you can make you feel so small. But Christ has died to turn that darkness to light. Let's pray.